0: Matthew chapter 12, beginning verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat? nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law that on the, on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him? Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Or how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will any anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him. So that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges." But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the, the Son of Man, will, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its, and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it. Except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Noah, and indeed a greater than Noah, or Jonah rather, is here. The Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first, so shall it be also shall it also be with this wicked generation, while he was still speaking or still talking to the multitudes, behold his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak to him. Then one said to him, "Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to, with you." But he answered and said to the one who told him, "Who is my mother?" And who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you have given it to us to shape us, to mold us, to conform us into the image of your Son. Help us, Lord, to receive your word today. Help our hearts to be teachable and pliable. We pray, Father, that we would be ready to obey your word by your grace and by your power. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. That was a long 50 verses. Well, we're nearing the middle of the book of Matthew, and as we've been studying his life, and we're kind of beginning now a point in his public ministry where he's entering a transition period. I had said many times that there was three phases of his public earthly ministry. The first phase was, has been called the year of obscurity, where he wasn't that known, wasn't that uh, people didn't know of him as much. The year of popularity, and the year of opposition. So right now he's getting ready to finish. Clo- he's getting closer to finishing the year of popularity. Matthew really doesn't get into the year of obscurity. Uh, like the Gospel of John does that was written about 35, 40 years later. So we are starting to see here in Matthew today, we're starting, we've already seen some opposition up to this point a little bit, but now we're really going to start seeing it ramp up and it takes the form of organized opposition. Before it was just more spontaneous opposition related to the Lord Jesus and speaking things that were uh, contrary to him and, and with unbelief and so forth. But now we're going to start seeing a more organized approach related to opposing him. And we're going to see it basically uh, really take off after chapter 14. i had said in the beginning when we started the book that there's different markers for each gospel that basically let us know where, where we're at in his public ministry. So, the first marker where he really begins his public ministry in earnest is was is when uh was when John the Baptist was put into prison, and then the second marker is coming up in chapter fourteen when he feeds the five thousand. After that, they want to put him in power by force, and that's when he starts saying difficult things and start weeding out the, the professors, and I don't mean professors like in, that teach things. I'm saying people that, that just make an outward, uh, showing of faithfulness and loyalty, but aren't true disciples. He starts weeding them out, saying difficult things. And at, the, and at the same time, opposition is increasing from without. So disciples are leaving at that point more and more, and, and he's receiving more and more opposition. So we're, knowing that will help us understand why he says what he says and Why he's doing what he's doing, knowing kind of where we're at. And all of those markers, and the third marker is the, uh, at Caesarea Philippi, um, when, when, you know, he says, who do men say that I am? And so forth. And then that's when it, after that, he heads right, beeline, right towards Jerusalem. And then the rest of the time is just the last week of his, um, time on earth and preparing his disciples for his departure. So now as we begin this chapter, Jesus and his disciples are in some grain fields. And you would think that that would be a relatively safe place and peaceful place to be and not really receive any opposition, but that is absolutely not the case. In verse one, we're told at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and eat. So they were on their way somewhere and the disciples were hungry. I can relate to that. You know, when I travel, I love to eat. I love to eat anytime, but especially when I'm traveling somewhere, it seems like when you're traveling, it's almost like you're afraid that you're going to go hungry somehow. And you eat more, you know, like I want that $15 uh, pretzel stick at the airport. You know, I need that, you know, to, to sustain me, you know. And so you're, you're just wanting to make sure that you're full at all times, it seems like. But they were on their way somewhere. It's totally normal for them to be hungry and just, going down and plucking some grain and so forth. But look at the reaction of the religious leaders in verse two. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So there was the Pharisees had and the religious leaders, they had a bunch of laws that they've added to the law of Moses. So there was all kinds of man-made tradition. At one point, Jesus said, your traditions make the word of God of no effect. And traditions are fine if they're biblical or they're spirit-directed, but when they contradict God's Word, we need to throw out the tradition and go with God's Word. And so that they had all these traditions and so forth. And so as far as they were concerned, the disciples committed three infractions. When they plucked the seeds, they were harvesting. When they rubbed or loosened the edible part of the grain from the inedible, or however you say it, the part that you can't eat, they were they could have considered them threshing, because that's what that threshing is. And then when they were um separating the getting rid of the part that they couldn't eat, that would be considered winnowing. And that and so all the disciples they had no idea, but they were they didn't know that they were actually farming at that time, according to the Pharisees and their laws. They were farm there, full on farming. Just by reaching down and plucking some grain and, and eating it. They were guilty, guilty, guilty on all counts as far as they were concerned. But I love Jesus' answer. He quotes the Bible. He said, but he's verse three, but he said to them, have you not read? And that is the the standard. That's the answer to legalism. Legalism is man-made rules that, and, and predominantly they have to do with, uh, keeping your salvation or maintaining your salvation or doing these things. Uh, to, to kind of earn right standing with God. That's the preeminent focus of legalism. But there's all kinds of other forms of legalism, man-made rules that man makes up, and they try to put that on other people and make it binding on them. And, and Jesus has, is having none of it, <laughs> having to do with none of it. He says, have you not read? So that's always the answer to the legalist is the Bible. What David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Now, this is straight out of 1 Samuel 16. And David was on the run. He was running from Saul. Saul was, was wanting to kill him. And he went into the tabernacle. And every week, the priests would make 12 loaves of bread on the Sabbath. And they would put those 12 loaves of bread on the table of showbread. And that was a symbol. And God laid all this out for them to do. It was a symbol of God's faithfulness that he would always provide for God's people. Because there was one loaf of bread for every tribe, the 12 tribes of Israel there. And then on the Sabbath, the priests would eat the bread and then they would bake more bread. So they would be eating the previous week's bread and then putting the new bread out for the, for the next week. And it was just perpetual. And and so that's what was going on. But at one point, David came in, was starving, running from Saul. And he he ate some of that bread and 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 uh, some of his men that were with him. And was there anything wrong with that? No, there wasn't. And this is uh, how you understand the law of Moses. This is how you understand the heart of God. It's how you understand the Sabbath. It's how you understand not going by the strict letter of the law, but looking at the heart behind the law And, and, and how God is gracious and merciful, which he's going to talk about in a moment. To some, it might appear that Jesus is condoning disobedience, but he's not. It is true that it is laid out in the law that the priest would eat the showbread. But it, it, it never said that there wasn't exceptions when mercy was needed. And that's what the Pharisees were lacking. They were lacking mercy. They didn't care the disciples were hungry. They didn't, and they're not going to care about the people that get healed later. They're not going to care about anybody but themselves and having self-righteousness and having a self-focus. Legalists always have a self-focus. They're not focused on God. They're focused on themselves. And they're wanting to make themselves feel good by what they do or what they don't do. And that's not what God has called us to. Before we do, want, move on, I do want to mention one thing that in Deuteronomy chapter twenty-three, verse twenty-five, it specifically says this: When you come into your neighbor's, uh, when you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. So in the law, God made an accommodation for people that were hungry, but He said, "Don't bring a sickle." <laughs> you know, it's like going into an apple orchard and taking one apple versus carrying a basket and then you're going to go sell see what God wasn't wanting was to take other people's things and have pro and, and profit from them and he has to put that in there because he knows us he knows that we do that well you know I he God's word said that I could pluck out some grain and eat it so I just plucked you know 40,000 of them you know and then I happen to have them left over so what was I going to do waste them no I'd have to sell them you know, and then I gave, I tithed off him. So it's okay. You know, there's all kinds of justification and mental gymnastics that we could commit. And God knows that. And he puts it right in his word. Now, Jesus provides another example of God allowing accommodation in the law in verse five. Look with me there. He says, or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Priests were working on the Sabbath. It was the day of that they would rest. They would worship the people would worship and everything, but the priests weren't resting. The priests were working. And, and God was okay with, with that. And so, you know, that's kind of the heart of God here. He knows that there's accommodation for certain circumstances. But again, they weren't even breaking the law. They were breaking the, the Pharisees' man-made traditions. And Jesus went out of his way to break those. <laughs> but he didn't break the law. He fulfilled the law. Now he went one step further in verse 6. He says, Yet I say to you that this, in this place there is one greater than the temple. Because he was fulfilling the law. Because he was God and is God in human flesh. So they're, they're focusing on such a small thing. He's saying, I am greater than all of it. I am the fulfillment of what all that pointed to. The temple was pointed to me. The priesthood pointed to me. Everything points to me. I'm greater than that. I'm greater than all those things. Verse seven. But if you had known what this means (laughs) can you imagine their pride feeling that one? If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned, notice, the guiltless. Again, they weren't doing anything wrong. So he quotes this now twice. You've seen it earlier in Matthew, Hosea chapter six, verse. Six and who is the I and the I deserve or I desire mercy and not sacrifice? It's the Lord. He desires mercy and not sacrifice, and it's important for us to see His heart here. This is what's governing all of this. This whole chapter. God is God. We have. If we don't see God's heart here, we're going to miss everything, because His heart is to help people. His heart is to love people. His heart is to set people free. His heart is to liberate people and to help them and to and he's concerned he's a true shepherd he he's gonna lay down his life for the sheep he's not a hireling a hired shepherd he it's he's a real shepherd he's the great shepherd the 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 true shepherd and so forth so we get to see his heart and his heart is merciful not a religious ritualistic heart what's harder for us to sacrifice something or to have a merciful heart Most of the time, it's, it's harder for us to have a merciful heart than it is to just give a sacrifice. Yes, bringing an animal, if we were in that system, bringing an animal was sacrificial. That's the point. It had to be spotless and, you know, without blemish and so forth. It had to be really, a really good animal and so forth. Yes, that was a sacrifice. You're giving up something. But God was always talking about and meaning and intending the weightier manners of the law of mercy and justice and, and righteousness and all those things. And so God's called us to be merciful. He desires mercy and he is merciful. Was the Sabbath designed to be a burden? Not at all. Mark is going to tell us and, and that Jesus would say that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And by the way, Sunday is not the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the, still the old Sabbath. It's Friday night, to Saturday night, sundown. That's the Sabbath. So we can have a Sabbath rest. We can have a day of rest, and we should have a day of rest. But Jesus is our Sabbath. Hebrews goes into great depth talking about He is our spiritual rest. And when we rest in Him in salvation, we are resting from our work. So they worshiped on Sunday because it was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And they would usually worship on Sunday nights because it was a work day, and they worked all day sunday and they came and they shared a meal together and they 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 worshiped together that's a, a lot of the early church worshiped in that way but because of these religious leaders and these man-made rules for many they made the sabbath the worst day of the week they, it was so burdensome you could walk only so many steps here and you couldn't you had to be careful to not lift a certain way or you'd be considered working and and it, they totally distort isn't that like us That we take something that God meant for good and that is for us and to benefit us and we turn it into this extreme thing that causes us to be miserable and others around us to be miserable. We're good at that, aren't we? Because we're no better than these Pharisees in our hearts. We can turn what God has meant for good and twist it and make it into something that uh, is is completely not His will. Now he says, verse 8, he makes another claim that's pretty significant. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Can you imagine the reaction that they would have hearing that? That I am Lord of even the Sabbath. And, and so he can do whatever he wants to do on the Sabbath because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 9, Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? that they might accuse him. See, here's this, we're starting to see the opposition that I'm talking about. Pretty soon, it's going to be the whole year of opposition, and it's going to be, you know, them opposing on every front. Verse 11. Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So he's saying you can do good on the Sabbath. You guys are missing the point. You guys are hypocrites because if you had a sheep and it fell into a pit on the Sabbath, you'd go rescue it. So don't talk to me about healing. There's nowhere nowhere in Scripture where it says God can't heal on the Sabbath. They're just trying to trip him up and they're trying to make him look as if he's um, contrary to the law of Moses. Verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it's restored as whole as the other. Now, you might look at that and I might look at that initially as cruel to have him tell the man to do something that he could not do. That's oftentimes how God does heal us. He will speak to our hearts and he will tell us to do something that involves an inability that we have as he wants to heal something. And he he's asking us to take a step of faith and he tells us to our hearts, go do this thing. Go act in this way. Be appropriate in this way. Do this. And we're like, I can't because I'm disabled in that way. And as we step out, when did, when did God heal that man? When did Jesus heal him? Before he stretched out his hand or as he stretched out his hand? I believe it was as he was attempting to stretch out his hand because he was obeying the Lord and something that did made no sense. And God had plenty of history of telling people to do things that look ridiculous on the surface. And God would heal as if he followed, if they followed his instructions. And this is one of them. So he says, stretch out your hand. He stretches out his hand and he, and he heals them and restores the one as, as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Now, here we go with the organized opposition. They were so baffled by this that they had to go out and plan how they were going to destroy him. So they're worried about rules of the Sabbath. They're worried about healing on the Sabbath. But yet they're plotting to kill him. And they, somehow in their mind, that works out to be equitable. That's ridiculous. That's how deceived our hearts can get. We can actually think that we're obeying God when we're actually working against him. And we're picking and choosing the things that we're going to obey. And we can be self-righteous about some things, even things that aren't in Scripture, But yet we're totally judging or being in pride or gossiping or slandering or whatever it else at the same time that we're accusing someone else. And Jesus already talked about this that we've seen in Matthew about take the plank out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's eye. We have to self-examine ourselves. And usually, as it's been said, you know, our sin looks the worst on other people. And the reason why it bothers us so badly when other people do certain things is because we usually have struggled with the same things. And we have to be honest with ourselves. So there this is a turning point here. This is definitely a marker. They are going out and plotting against Him how they might destroy Him. Verse 15, But when Jesus knew it, He withdrew from there. And great multitudes followed Him, and He healed them all. Yet He warned them not to make Him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, My servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. So why does he say in verse 16, he warned them not to make him known. Why, why the secrecy? And we've seen this already before in the book of Matthew. It's because there's a timing to everything. He knows his time isn't come. When he, when he's at Caesarea Philippi at that point, or in Luke, when it says he, from that point on, he steadfastly put his face towards Jerusalem. He knows that that's the time that he goes and he's going to end up proclaiming himself to be the Messiah on Palm Sunday, which fulfills Daniel's prophecy to the day. And then the following Friday, he's going to be crucified for the sins of the world. There is an exact timing to it. And he doesn't want that to to be prematurely uh, or, or do anything that would potentially cause that to, to prematurely occur. And I don't believe it could occur because it was set, but he still was telling people to not spread the word. And you would think he'd be saying, well, tell everybody. But there was a way that his, the revelation Of who he was and what he was accomplishing and what he was about was supposed to be uh, revealed. I like what it says here he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He was not to be a political messiah, he was not going to be like the other prophets. He was greater, obviously, than a prophet. He was a prophet, but he was greater than a prophet. But the prophets would cry out in the streets, and the prophets would—they would make loud commotions, and they would—they would make political statements, and they would challenge the the powers that be, and so forth. That wasn't what he was called to do. Jesus taught the multitudes, but he ministered to the individuals, and and he wasn't he wasn't inappropriately going out and fighting against this world because. He knew that what he was supposed to do was not of this world he wasn't he said, if my followers were of this world, they'd be picking up weapons to fight, but they're not except Peter. He was the exception. He tried to do that I' didn't more than try uh, he he chopped off lopped off an ear there uh but but in this scripture that this is from isaiah forty two I really want to zero in on verse twenty because he says a bruised reed he will not break." And smoking flax, he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory. A reed is a plant, and they would be used by shepherds to to make and construct an instrument, a certain type of instrument, and they'd be used for other things. And they could crack, and they could get damaged, and they would be discarded. And that's the key word for understanding uh, the 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 reed here and the smoking flax. Smoking flax was a wick. That was put into a, a lamp that had oil in it. And so he, what he's saying here is that Jesus is sensitive to the needy. He doesn't discard the needy when they're the most vulnerable. That's what the Pharisees did. They just used people. Jesus is going to rebuke them in chapter 19, talking about they won't lift a finger. To help, they put burdens on people and don't even lift a finger to help them, and so forth. Again, they were all self-focused. So, a, a reed is very delicate. People are delicate. This is all picture of people. People are delicate. They're easily bruised. You know, when you get a bruise, sometimes it's in the context of being busy and you don't really realize that you have injured yourself to the next day, and you notice you have a bruise on your leg, your arm. Does that anyone ring ring a bell with anyone? Yeah. You're bruised, so you that requires care and tenderness. When a mother puts on a band aid when the son or daughter has a, a bruise, especially when they're very little, you know they're very sensitive to that injury, and it takes it takes precision and it takes care and gentleness to put that band aid on. And and he 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 will not break us when we're damaged like this. What would, what, if, what would how would You'd be, as a mom or dad or a parent, if you, if you hit that, you know, bruise or that injury, it would be cruel. You don't do that. Something that's bruised, you handle delicately. You care for that thing. And, and if you have a wick that's smoldering and there's just, you know, it's almost completely out and it's just smoke's coming up, there's no fuel left. The Pharisees in the heart that doesn't show mercy and compassion, it says it's useless. Just like that bruised reed is worthless. I'm going to discard it. So is this lamp. It's not good for anything. I'm just going to completely put it out. God doesn't do that. So when we're bruised, people are bruised. When we're hurting, when we're out of energy, when we're totally lacking strength and we feel like there's just barely any smoke coming from the wick of our lives, so to speak, God's not going to come and just snuff us out and say, well, see, because you're weak and you're empty and bruised and so forth, then I don't have anything to do with you. He doesn't do that. He, he will not break a bruised reed. He will not quench a smoking flax. He loves people. And, and that's how he wants to use our lives. To be sensitive enough to know when people are hurting, to be healing a healing agent from God in their lives, to not pile on. The world piles on. When we're weak and we're vulnerable and we're making mistakes and we're falling apart and our lives are a mess, the world piles on. God doesn't do that. He comes alongside. We're not attorneys, spiritual attorneys or spiritual policemen. We're we're spiritual paramedics. We come alongside to help in a, in a time of great need and vulnerability. And And so we have the same ministry. God wants to use our lives for him to continue that ministry of caring for the vulnerable when the world is discarding them when they think that they are useless it's a beautiful picture of god's mercy verse 22 then one was brought to him who was demon possessed blind and mute and he healed him so that the blind so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw just think about that we just pass right over it he's blind he doesn't see we don't know how long he'd been blind didn't say from birth like other places. He can't talk. And, and and God heals him. He changes his life. And the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? You see, Jesus wasn't just clearly saying who he was everywhere. He's wanting his actions coupled with the Holy Spirit's ministry to reveal to people and, and speak to their hearts that this is the son of David. They are being provoked to ask this question. This isn't being forced upon them by the Messiah. They are cooperating with what the spirit is doing. The spirit is testifying of Jesus and revealing Jesus to them. And they're asking the question. And it's a very good question. And the answer is yes, this is the son of David. That was a messianic title. Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow, this fellow, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So they're trying to, they, they can't deny what's happening. They can't deny these miracles. They're not saying, well, these miracles are illegitimate. They're not They're not happening. No, they're happening. They're right in front of their faces. They knew that these were real. The only possible excuse they could come up with was the, how, the source from which these miracles came. And they're saying it came from Satan. And he's saying, that doesn't make any sense. A, a kingdom divided, divided against itself will not stand. So Satan cannot cast out demons and will not cast out demons. But he gives this principle of a strong man He's talking about a human life and he's going to talk about he's going to exorcise demons and they're talking about that that's the, that's the context here and and he's he's giving basically some a couple different principles related to spiritual warfare that are noteworthy for us. First of all, there is a ministry of exorcism. Exorcism is the exorcisms are real. I mean, I'm not saying every single expression that you see is real, but God does perform exorcisms through believers. I've been a part of one. I've seen, I've been a part of one and been exposed to another, and it's real. I'm telling you, I've spent probably two and a half hours, three hours with another group of people and casting out demons out of this person, and they were gagging and coughing out the demon, and then they would just collapse, and then they would start writhing again, and all the stuff that you see in scripture and so forth. There was probably 20 or 25 demons that were cast out you know and and i will cover that a little bit more in a moment but he says he has to bind the strong man and i think that related to spiritual warfare we can ask the lord to bind the strong man to to pray to pray before we engage in ministry how much ministry is is attempted without prayer preceding it every great move of god that you see in the past and even currently is always preceded by prayer. Always. These great revivals that you hear about and so forth, always preceded by someone praying diligently for a time before that started. And we can ask the Lord in prayer to, to bind the strong man. To, we're not called to bind Satan. We're not told that anywhere in Scripture or demons. But we're, but we're called to exercise demons, to cast them out, or ask the Lord to... Uh, binds the the demons and so forth and and affect spiritual warfare because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. That's second Corinthians chapter ten. So for us as believers the, our, we don't fight in the physical realm predominantly, we fight in the spiritual realm, and too many churches are afraid to talk about this. We don't talk about the spirit realm you know it's like you live in the spirit realm. This, that's what this world is. Jesus said the things that are temporal are, are visible and the things that are invisible are eternal. Remember the times where God allowed people to see in the spirit realm in the Old Testament and they saw what was going on? I mean, as a new Christian, I read this present darkness and scared me to death. you ever read that book, I mean, there's obviously a lot of latitude that the author, you know, expresses with, you know, things that aren't in scripture. But I mean, it describes the spirit realm and what's going on. In, you know, where we can't see and so forth. But that's a, that's a a principle for us to, to recognize in prayer that we can affect things and ask the Lord to bind the strong man. The second principle is divide and conquer. This is true by just regular militaries. You divide and you conquer. And the enemy works against the church and believers all the time to divide. God adds to the church. He subtracts from the church. And mostly in Scripture, he multiplies the church. But division is the is the enemy's mathematics. He divides. And, and that's why God's called us to be in the unity of the Spirit, he talks about in Ephesians chapter 4. So we're called to be in unity. And there's a difference between unity and conformity. Conformity is forced agreement or forced being in lockstep with other people in a forced way. True biblical spirit directed unity is when we come together as an expression of his leading and a, an expression of worship and obedience to his word. And we're and, and the God wants to unite the body of Christ. Jesus prayed for that in in John chapter 17, that we would be one. So God is always working. That's why we should be when we come together and meet corporately, we're doing things as one one unit. He primarily refers to us as a body, one unit who happened to be individual members, not individual members who happen to be part of a larger whole. That's our Western thinking instead of biblical thinking. So we have to recognize that the enemy wants to divide. He wants to break us away from fellowship. He wants to divide our families. He wants to divide our ministries and cause division within ministries. And we have to be on guard against that because we know that division comes by People expressing their sinful natures and that, that, that the enemy wants to divide and conquer. So it's a great principle. Now beginning in verse 31, Jesus is going to expose their wicked hearts. Look with me there. He says, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the son of man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy spirit, It will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. And one of the most popular questions that pastors get or call in Bible answer shows get is, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? How do I blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Because people are worried about it. And you have to recognize to whom he is speaking here. He's speaking to people that know that he's the Messiah who willfully reject him. That's who he's talking to. Who are seeing the miracles, the real miracles with their own eyes, and they're still rejecting? Sometimes people will say, "Well, if you made Jesus, if Jesus appeared right in front of me right now, I would believe." Not, not necessarily true. People didn't believe in his public ministry that we're standing right there. So it does, our hearts are deceitfully wicked, the Scripture says, desperately wicked, and we can self-deceive and we can be completely, uh, you know, rejecting the clear message of the gospel and the reality of Jesus Christ dying for us on the cross and His resurrection, we can reject that. And if we reject that at the end of our life or our last breath, whenever that is, and we've rejected that clear message of the Messiah being who He is in the the gospel, that can't be forgiven. The rejection of Christ cannot be forgiven because that's the only way we can be forgiven of all of our other sins. And the people that are usually worried about this are, are the ones that are constantly being convicted of their sin. And what I tell them is, if you were truly in the, in the qualifying for this, you wouldn't care. The fact that you're worried about it right now, because you're getting convicted so much, shows that you're a believer, that the Holy Spirit's inside of you. So if you're worried about this, don't ever be worried about it. Because if you're a follower of Christ, you're getting convicted, and you're concerned about your holiness, there's no way that you have rejected Christ. And, and died in that condition, obviously. So he's warning them, and he hasn't said that they've done it yet. Notice that. He hasn't said, you've committed this yet. He just talks about it. He's still reaching out. There will be Pharisees that come to Christ. Subsequent to even his resurrection, there'll be Pharisees that come to Christ. Then he adds to it. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its he keeps it really simple. <laughs> you know, if you have received Christ, then fruit of the fruit of the Spirit will come out of your life. If you have not received Christ, then what we're going to experience are the works of the flesh coming out of your life. And God wants the fruit of the Spirit increasingly coming out of our lives. The gifts of the Spirit are not the barometer for spiritual maturity. The fruit of the Spirit is. As we spend time with Him every day, as we commune with Him, as we abide in Christ, He bears fruit through our lives. Then he calls them a brood of vipers. So he's trying to win friends and influence people here. <laughs> what is a brood of vipers? It's a It's a bunch of snakes. <laughs> you're a bunch of snakes. How can you, being evil, speak good things? Remember, these are the men that think that they're the most spiritual people on the planet. And he's saying, you're a bunch of snakes. How can you speak any good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. So that's the fruit he's talking about. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. That's bad fruit. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Now people go all different directions with those verses, but obviously we're not saved by our words or our works or anything else. But what... But as he already said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if your heart is right with God, your words are going to be appropriate. And, G- and Peter wrote that if any man speaks, let him speak the oracles of God. And so we're told in scripture that out of the, uh, the, uh, the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. And Jesus, as I've mentioned up to this point, didn't say one word too little or one, too many words at all. He said exactly what was appropriate. It's very convicting for all of us. The key thing is to understand that the word idle there means useless, unprofitable or lazy. So it's just letting anything come out that we just we're not even thinking. We just let things come out and we're all guilty of that. And God wants us to continuously grow into maturity with what comes out of our mouths. But that has to happen by having our hearts change. And if our hearts change, then what comes out of our mouth? We don't have a mouth issue. We don't, have a, we don't have a word problem. We have a heart problem. And when we change the heart and let him change the heart, then our words change. And so our words, what we say, he will reflect, especially as believers, at the judgment seat of Christ when we're standing before him, what we said, how we said it, all those things. Was it done in love? Was it spirit directed? We will have to give an account for our words and so forth. It won't be about heaven and hell. It'll about it'll be about saying what we want need to say before the Lord and being honest. It'll also be about rewards, but we'll have to give an account for every syllable that comes out of our mouths. Remember, when we say things, Jesus knows about it. He he's inside of us. He sees it. I remember I said like I've said this before. When we and someone told me this as a new believer, when you sin, it's like doing it in front of the throne throne of God. Oh, <laughs> thanks, appreciate that. You know, but it's true. We think because we can't see heaven that somehow it's real far away and God can't see it. He sees everything. He sees every word that comes out of our mouth. And James, the the Lord Jesus' half-brother in the book of James, has a lot to say about the tongue and how important it is to keep it tamed. Verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. In other words, we're going to snap our fingers and you perform for us. But he answered and said to him, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jonah was in that fish for that time period, and he said there is a sign that will be given this generation. I mean, what else do they need? You have a mute and blind guy getting healed. You have a withered hand straightening out. You have all these miracles. What, what more signs do you need? Matthew's been itemizing all these fulfilled prophecies that only Jesus was fulfilling. They were seeing all of it. And remember, John says he did more than scripture records. So they're seeing it and they're seeing it and they're seeing it. And he's saying, that's, that's completely wicked for me to jump through your hoops. I'm not going to jump through your hoops, but you'll see the sign, <laughs> the sign that, that separates all prophets from me and so-called prophets. It's the sign of the sun or the sign of Jonah. And he will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And we'll, we'll get into that later in Ephesians verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah because the Ninevites did. Jonah did not want them to repent. That's how his heart was. He left Joppa, went the other direction. God disciplined him by sending that fish. Eventually, he made it to Nineveh. And he preached, he proclaimed the truth to them. And they repented. And he was mad at God. God had to deal with him. It just shows you where our hearts are. But he says, they repented of the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, that is the queen of Sheba, we're told in the Old Testament, will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. There's three greater things we see in this chapter. Greater than the temple, greater than Solomon, and greater than Jonah. And they're all pointing to Christ in some way. He fulfilled those pictures. They were a picture and a type of Christ. He fulfilled them all verse 43 when an unclean spirit goes out of a man he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none then he says I will return to my house from which I came and when he comes he finds it empty swept and put in order then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself and they enter and dwell there and the last state of that man is worse than the first so shall it also be with this wicked generation you can't just exorcise demons and leave that house, that life, empty. I'll go back to the story of that exorcism. So there were two and a half hours, and supposedly this lady received Christ after we were done. But she wasn't sincere. The next day she was completely, had a different view of us, thought well, we were mean to her and, and manipulated her and all of that, and and was completely deceived. So she wasn't sincere. So whenever we are engaging in that and there's a demon-possessed person and God uses us to exercise demons, they need to receive Christ because they're going to end up way worse than they were in the beginning if they don't. And, and, and so he warns, he warns of that. <clears throat> they have to receive Christ. Verse 46. While he was still speaking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It's almost like he knew that people would lift them up higher than they should. And they said, and he, and he commented on this. He wasn't being mean to them, you know. And Mark, we're told that his closest friends and possibly even his family were concerned that he was going out of his mind. So they were thinking, likely, that he was in danger because the opposition was starting. Like I said, they're trying to rescue him. Jesus did not need to be rescued. And so they were they were trying to have access to him. And the the crowd and the disciples assumed that they would get that because of their relationship to him. And he shocked them all by saying, no, these are talking to his disciples. These are my these are my mothers and brothers and sisters. You know, Jesus had four half brothers and at least two half sisters. And James was one of them that, like I said, the one who wrote the book of James and they eventually would come to faith in Christ, all of them. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, it says that his brothers were there with his mother at the, at the, uh, day, on the day of Pentecost in the upper room. And it specifically mentions that because they needed to see the sign of the, of, of, uh, Jonah. They needed to see that resurrection. And that's when they came to Christ. And so here we have, I'd say, just a few lessons here from these few verses here related to his family. First of all, our family can be the last to be affected by our preaching. A prophet is, is not without honor except in his hometown. Our family can be the most skeptical. So you need to re- remember that. If that's occurring in your life, you need to remember that jesus it's this, it was the same with Jesus. It was the same with prophets. They're familiar with us we're they're so familiar with us they can't believe that it's it's could be actually true that we're different and and they won't listen and we need to not be affected by that we need to continue to be faithful and we also need to recognize and learn from this that our family can't end up on the right side of truth in the end just like the Lord Jesus's earthly family did so we're not supposed to give give up we need to be comforted but the biggest thing that's a blessing for these verses as I begin my descent no I'm almost done is that? Is that look how Jesus views us. Look how he sees us. How intimate he's, he sees himself with us. He says, this is my family right here. And how do we know if we're one of his disciples? Well, it tells us that verse 50, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So whoever does the will of, what's the will of the Father? To know him to know God, and to obey what he says. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. So we're supposed to express our love to him by our obedience to him, by his grace and by his power. So he wants us to know by his spirit how he sees us. He sees us as family. That's how close he associates with us. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to associate that closely with us. We'd be fine with just being servants, which we are. But he says, your sons and daughters, you're part of my family. That's how close you are. And we can think because of our failures and how we fall short that he's keeping a healthy distance from us, and he doesn't. He's right inside of us. You know that as a believer? He's inside of you. And that's not going to change. And he loves you. So when you fail, when I fail, he needs you need to remember that he is inside of you and he loves you and you are part of his family and he's that intimate with you. It's great seeing his heart, isn't it? His gracious heart, how he deals with bruised reeds, how he deals with smoking flaxes or smoking wicks. He doesn't put them out. He doesn't break a a, a reed that's bruised. He's gentle. He's merciful. He desires mercy, not sacrifice for himself and for us. And it's a beautiful picture of his heart. You can't leave this chapter without recognizing how amazing Jesus' heart is. We could miss it. And the Spirit wants us to see it because He wants to manifest that heart through us as we are light in in this dark world. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. We thank You for just how amazing it is. And we thank You for these lessons, Lord, that we have learned today by studying this chapter. Father, there are so many ways and directions You could take our hearts related to these verses. We yield our hearts to You to continuously throughout the day and the week to speak to us regarding anything in this chapter, Lord, that you have covered with us today. We thank you that we can sit at your feet and learn from you by your word or through your word, by your spirit. And we thank you in Jesus name. Amen.